Hi everyone, you are tuning in to Shout for Libraries. We are everyone's favorite library-centric radio show here on CJSR. Every month we bring you a half hour of fresh, fresh, library, library, content. I am Michelle. And I am Julia. And together we are Michelle and Julia. Julia and Michelle. Mighty and powerful hosts. If you get that <laughs> reference, you're welcome. You are of our generation. <laughs> The Show for Libraries is a show created by Masters in Library and Information students, such as ourselves, at the University of Alberta. Uh, in every episode of the show, we explore a different topic related to the information world, uh, and today we are providing you with a time-honored library tradition of reader's advisory. So that's essentially when librarians would be like, oh, you like that? Then you would probably like this. Uh, because librarians would be locked in the libraries at night with all the books, because uh, that's where librarians lived back in the day. Anyway, uh, in the tradition of librarians telling people what's up about stuff, we asked a bunch of people on our team to review the content that we, in the aftermath of this semester ending, are consuming right now. Basically, some hot-off-the-press, fresh reviews for y'all about what we are watching or listening to or reading or thinking about right now. And there may be some spoilers in here. <laughs> That's right, and reviews are important because they can bring a reader's attention to materials that they may otherwise never have heard about, and this can result in the expansion of the information and viewpoints that a person is exposed to. They can influence opinion about a work, bolstering sales and the voice of a given creator, and this is one factor contributing to what kinds of thoughts or ideas become popular. Reviews can also increase the perceived legitimacy of genres and mediums, leading to awards and notoriety. For example, please see anything that Neil Gaiman has ever touched, but most specifically that time that positive critical reviews helped him win a Pulitzer Prize for a graphic novel. And finally, good reviews help librarians and vendors decide what material to stock, which determines what you as the patron or customer even have access to. In these subtle ways, reviews help determine what information we are exposed to and how members of our society think or feel about certain ideas. And now that that's been established, well, let's talk about how much I love cats. <laughs> I really want to hear about how much you love cats. <laughs> All right. So Lackadaisy started as a webcomic about a speakeasy whose staff are trying to keep it in business after the owner is murdered in Prohibition era St. Louis. But today it has two print published volumes. Also, everyone is a cat. I don't know why, and it's never explained. But this is a sepia-toned spectacle that makes up for the confusion with a colorful cast of characters and fast-paced plot. There's Rocky, a manic Tom Sawyer type who swallowed a thesaurus, and his cousin Freckle, a good kid who just sometimes shoots a bunch of people. They work for the, again, very nice but possibly murderous Mitzi, widow of the late owner, and alongside Victor, everyone's large, grumpy Russian uncle. I'd be remiss, of course, if I didn't mention my own favorite character, Mordecai, the orderly assassin with a passion for symmetry and tidiness who is perpetually disgusted by the lack of hygiene inherent in his job and, apparently, his co-workers. Well, they are cats. Yes. Yeah, He's very fastidious about <laughs> As you can probably infer at this point, this is a largely character-driven story. If you enjoy a certain light tone and hijinks covering deep, dark secrets, or if you are like me, a crazy cat person, Lackadaisy is the series for you. Beyond that, the phenomenal and detailed artwork will have you lingering on the page all while you accidentally absorb historical information. Two volumes in this series are not available at the Edmonton Public Library, but you can read the entire comic for free on lackadaisycats.com. Thank you, Michelle. 
Honestly, accidentally is pretty much the only way I want to absorb historical <laughs> information. So I'm definitely going to check that out. If you're just tuning in, you are listening to Shout for Libraries, Holiday Hermit Reviews and Recommendations Edition. Our next review is from Shout's own Chris Joseph, who is, as you're about to hear, a big nerd and an active citizen. And I can't say anything about this because I did a whole episode on copyright last year. <laughs> Our listeners may be aware that the government is currently reviewing Canada's Copyright Act. Now, these processes do not make for terrific entertainment. Watching a meeting of the Industry Committee or the Heritage Committee is about as much fun as watching Fifty Shades of Grey with your mother. But possible changes to the Act might have huge consequences for students. So it's a pretty good thing that once in a while, someone livens up a meeting by giving an incredible, dramatic performance. Which is why today, I will be reviewing my MP, Randy Boissonneau's appearance at the November 22nd Heritage Committee meeting. You see, the current Act has a thing called Fair Dealing in Section 29, which allows Exceptions to copyright for things like news reporting and education. Uh, big publishers hate this provision because they say it steals money from the hands of authors and artists. $50 million per year, in fact, with fact placed in quotes because it's actually just an estimate based on, I, I, don't, I don't know, something that sounds impressive. Anyway, Randy Boissonneau in the meeting plays the antagonist here, siding with the publishers. And Glenn Rollins, who's been here, has said $26 would cover off all of University Canada's tariffs. $26 per student would help to reduce the 50 million, maybe it's 50, I hear it's 30, I hear it's 50. I've got documents here that say $50 million that aren't in the system. Now, Randy's performance here is nuanced. His insecurity about the amount of money being lost, is it 30 million or 50, draws focus away from the fact that he thinks that the fix is for students to pay to make up the gap. Listen next for how Randy uses his gay card to make it seem like students are stifling poor, marginalized people for the cost of cheap wine. You could go to student leaders and say, put two cheap bottles of wine on the table, or a really good one. Or put half a video game on the table to make sure that the authors who are writing about LGBTQ people and Indigenous people and people with disabilities and people of colour and Canadian stories can have those books on university shelves and courses, digitally or not. Oh girl, you did not. As a queer artist myself and a member of two performing unions, girl, you are not speaking for me here. And since when does copyright and 70-year terms for art made by white guys at mega corporations guarantee a diversity of voices? Ugh, no matter. Because what comes next from Randy is a dramatic tour de force. We lead the world in AI. The Chinese are trying to beat us. We're not going to have Canadian textbooks in AI unless you fix this and start respecting the bargain that you made in 2012. So there you have it. Unless students pay up, China will have all of the AI because something about textbooks? I, I, I don't get it. Listen, at the end of the day, Randy Boissonneau's performance simply did not elevate the source material. Even though Randy memorized the script, it just wasn't very much to work with. So I give access to copyrighted materials for educational purposes two big thumbs up and Randy an epic thumbs down. During this consultation period, the Copyright Act is often being framed as legislation to protect creators, but that's really not quite true. What the Act does is it balances the rights of creators and users, because though it's a good idea to give creators exclusive rights over their creations for a while, it is also important to keep the engine of culture and creativity running by providing access to works so that new content can be created and our culture can evolve and thrive. 
Giving authors money does not increase the audience for marginalized voices in this country, but giving students access to those voices as part of fair dealing during their education creates a culture that hungers for those voices, and that is when those artists will enjoy the benefits of copyright. If you want to turn someone into a rabid reader, let them read. The sequel to the Copyright Act might be released as early as next year. For Shout for Libraries, this is Chris Joseph. Isn't Chris Joseph's voice so dreamy? Uh, the first time I spoke to him, I, I had to tell him he sounds exactly like the host of Night Vale. <laughs> Honestly, I could listen to that man talk about copyright all day long. Thanks, Chris. <laughs> and now let's dive into the medium of music with Kendra's review of the album Myth by Lonnie Holly. Hi everyone, my name is Kendra and I am an editor and interviewer here at Shout for Libraries. One of my favorite ways of experiencing the world is through sound and music. So I thought I would share with you an album that has been incredibly important and influential uh, for me in the last year. So the album is called Myth, M-I-T-H, by Lonnie Holly. It was put out by Jaguar Records in October 2018. So Lonnie Holly is a 68-year-old multimedia artist from Alabama. Holly didn't actually start recording music until the age of 63, and now um, that he is 68, he's put out three albums with Myth being the most recent. So Myth is a 10-song album. It is deeply conceptual, um, but non-linear in its exploration of labor and love, uh, violence and beauty in the past and the future. I would describe it as an auditory Afro-futurist exploration of being black in the United States. Um, I would say that as a white person, that's how I interpret that. Um, of encountering state violence that continues from iteration to iteration, but is always about policing black, non-white bodies. The album is deeply embedded with themes of time and space travel, imaginative possibilities for alternative realities to white supremacy, ancestral spiritual connections. Holly is deeply visionary in his presentation of the past, the, the present, and the future. Through his lyrics, experimental horn sections, ethereal astral sonic projections, vocal proclamations that range from a soft hum to like a deep growl, almost yell. He really demands that we not only listen to the words, uh, but the feelings behind the words and the sonic landscape that uh, nurtures or holds those words. So to me, this album requires that you listen to it with your entire body. And I think this is also important because the album itself speaks to the physicality of Holly's worlds. He really asks that we tap into the connection of our bodies, of the way that we move in our bodies, the ways that we dance, we shake things up, we reclaim or release space. In his final song on the album, I Sometimes I Just Want to Dance, he reminds us of the healing power of moving up and down and shaking things around and doing this together with each other. Having said that, Holly spends as much time in this world as he does in others. 
In my favorite song on the album, Down in the Ghostness of the Darkness, he speaks to the depth of lived memory and ancestral connection. In How Far is Spaced Out and Coming Back, he reminds us of other planes in which beauty can exist and speaks to the feeling of being tethered between them. So while critics have spoken to the absence of tunefulness in his songs and in his vocals, and I wouldn't disagree, I actually think that the dissonance in his voice and in his vocals is central to the feeling of the album. I don't think this album is supposed to be easy to listen to. Just like racism and slavery and police violence also shouldn't be easy to listen to. However, I think there's something more going on here, which I think might be that hearing about or <clears throat> experiencing or feeling these like alternative ways of being are, are kind of difficult for us to grasp. And that those feelings within our bodies can sometimes challenge what we think is like good or right. Um, <clears throat> sonically and otherwise. So to me, I think one of the most important things about this album is the way that Holly reminds us of alternative ways that we can evoke emotions such as grief um, and healing and, and hope through sound. So I would really encourage all of you to listen to this album with headphones. Um, I think that we're really, really lucky to be blessed with such like a visionary projection for the future and a deeply like prophetic um, exploration of the past and present. And I'm going to go out on 30 seconds of Down in the Ghostness of the Darkness. Uh, I hope you enjoy the album and thanks for listening. In the ghostness of darkness, be not afraid. like that i'm excited to listen to that album now and that's why reviews are important people they direct you to things you would like like that one just did all right so shifting from music to podcasts and on the theme of reflecting on the way that media influences the way you think we've got joel blelshinger's review of a podcast he's been really into called citations needed hey there my name is joel i'm going to be reviewing a podcast for the shout for libraries readers advisory edition here at the University of Alberta School of Library and Information Studies. So the most accurate analogy I can think of to describe my past podcast listening ethic, so to speak, might be to compare it to a series of passionate but short-lived fickle romantic trysts. What do I mean by this? Well, I become completely obsessed with something, a podcast, listen to 16 hours of it in a weekend and then abruptly stopped listening on episode 13 of 20 or something and I never return again. I'm seemingly never haunted by not knowing the end or anything of that sort. I remember doing this with Serial, season one. I know, shocker. And Alexis Madrigal's Containers, for example. And I'm sure there are other examples of me just completely piecing out, like a ghost, a ghost on podcasts. My most recent obsession, 
and one that I think might have the potential uh, to be the one uh, is a show called Citations Needed by Nima Shirazi and Adam Johnson. So I'm just going to read how they describe the show, and then I'm going to kind of provide my own impressions. Combining political commentary and media analysis with a heavy dose of skepticism, humor, and history, Citations Needed challenges propaganda and holds power to account. Nima and Adam call out and correct the media's ubiquitous reliance on and regurgitation of false and destructive narratives, tropes, and stereotypes. And I think this is a rare instance where the uh, description of something does not oversell it. Um, Over the last week or so, as I've been binging the show at work, I've just been so consistently impressed with the quality of thinking on the show and the quality of conversations that Nima and Adam have and also have with the guests that they bring on. A typical episode format for the show that I've been able to gather is Nima and Adam will introduce the show's topic. They present maybe 25 or 30 minutes of research and kind of argument that they've done on that topic. And then at that point, they will introduce uh, a thinker or an academic who they will then uh, discuss the topic with for the remainder of the show, often referencing things that they introduced in their introductory portion. Just to give a sense of what the show is about, I'll talk about a few of my favorite recent episodes. One was on American sports culture and militarism. So American jingoism and particularly the MLB and the NFL and highly aestheticized representations of the military in those spaces. Uh, Another one on Uh, what they call the neoliberal optimism industry. So this is kind of the idea that there's a class of thinkers or pundits that exist, like Steven Pinker, who they particularly come for in the show. These people exist to justify uh, existing power structures and to tell us that life under neoliberalism is fine, violence is decreasing, the material conditions of people are getting better, and they kind of explode a lot of this um, rhetoric from what they call the neoliberal optimism industry. Another one that I liked, I loved actually, was the how the West Wing poisoned the liberal mind. So that was particularly looking into the 90s uh, Aaron Sorkin written American drama, The West Wing, and its weird relationship with American kind of centrist liberal politics, where people that watched that show ended up serving in the Obama administration, et cetera. And the show has ended up having this really weird um, relationship with American liberalism where people believe that it's an accurate representation of American politics and then enter politics. I would highly recommend citations needed for anyone who's interested in a really rigorous analytical examination of American culture and politics, particularly from a strong uh, leftist perspective. That said, the show is not kind of a humorless political downer fest. They also have a great sense of humor, particularly in the West Wing episode. I just died when they played some of the excerpts that they then commented on. So I I really like the balance that Adam and Nima strike uh, between really sharp, keen political and cultural analysis, but not self-seriousness. In closing, I, I, I think this could be the one, guys. I think this is the one. 
All right. So apparently library students really love holiday movies because we have some more holiday movie reviews coming at you. The next section is a review of the Netflix Christmas movies that are out this year. Julia and fellow Shouter Marin Car Wynn watch these movies, uh, mostly so that you don't have to. Here's Marin. Hey, it's Marin, and I'm here with a review of Netflix's A Christmas Prince and A Christmas Prince The Royal Wedding. So last Christmas, Netflix gave us A Christmas Prince, and it was an instant hit. Well, for at least 53 people. The movie gained some press when Netflix put out a tweet saying, To the 53 people who have watched A Christmas Prince every day for the past 18 days, who hurt you? Clearly there are some super fans, and Netflix is Santa Claus and knows if you've been good or bad and knows what you watch late into the night. A Christmas Prince introduced us to Amber, described constantly as a polite young lady who is not looking for love, she's just focusing on her career as a journalist. But she gets caught up in an elaborate Roman Holiday-esque lie with a prince, though this movie lacks all of the cleverness and charm of Roman Holiday, so if that got you excited, please, please do not watch this movie. But hijinks do ensue with this prince that she meets who at first looks nothing like a prince, that is, until he shaves and turns out to be a mega babe. The Prince Richard is rumored to enjoy a life of women, wine, and song, but it turns out that he has deeper roots and he is the victim of some untrue bad press. Amber soon learns that where there is a tiara, there is dirt, and she must maneuver this world of plots to steal Richard's crown. Eventually, the truth about her identity comes out, and she saves his crown and they fall madly in love. This year, we have a new installment of The Christmas Prince, The Royal Wedding, to tempt our 53 loyal fans. It's been a year since we last saw our heroes. They've been making their relationship work long distance. Cue the montage of planes, trains, and automobiles here. But somehow, our heroine has still remained herself. Thank God. We were so worried. The movie clips along quite nicely, with the same stealing the cab jokes and, oh, isn't Amber so very clumsy, and who will be thrown into the royal dungeon that may or may not exist? The jokes that I refuse to stomach are the jokes about meat jelly and the things that English people eat. How dare they? Mincemeat and figgy pudding is life, don't they know? But this movie has darker undertones as well. The prince is trying out a modernization initiative. Honestly, it stays as vague as that throughout the movie. But the realm is falling on hard financial times. People are losing their jobs and no one can quite figure it out. Enter Amber to the rescue. But oh no, she gets distracted by all the wedding plans and battling with the staff over what dress is her and what dress is not. Protocol reigns supreme in this palace, and we start to worry that our queen-to-be will never be able to stay true to who she is. Tensions rise between her and Richard as well. Richard is is very busy. A king's duties are never done, and they are sleeping in separate bridal suites. And how could he not have time to go and pick out a tree with her? What, does our Christmas prince hate Christmas now or something? Eventually, because of Amber's penchant for uncovering the truth, she discovers the truth behind the realm's financial struggles. She even foregoes her bachelorette party to do it. What a modern, selfless princess. With some careful code-breaking done by Richard's 14-year-old sister, children really are our future, they discover the dark secret that Lord Leopold, a distant uncle, some kind of visiting relative, is at the heart of it. He's been siphoning off money this whole time. They expose him in a very public setting, and as always, the villains say they have an army of lawyers. But this time, this time, the future queen pulls a bow and arrow on him. What's more, we learn that there actually is a dungeon to throw him into. Whoopee! King Richard then triumphantly tears up his pre-written speech and saves the realm and gives everyone a Christmas bonus. They all rush to go out and view the tree that Amber has managed to decorate, her one queen-to-be task gone right. And she's eschewed the tasteful white and gold tree decorations for, oh God, oh God, inflatable reindeer. Perhaps it's my own British sensibilities, but this is truly, utterly appalling.
At the end, we finally get our royal wedding, though for all the talk of a contemporary gown, she appears to be wearing a very modest dressing gown. Oh, but she does reveal that she's still wearing her signature sneakers, sparkly this time. Oh, and it looks like we might have another royal wedding in our future as Richard's mother catches the bouquet. Though it will no doubt never be as dope as this wedding, the big dance finish is a conga line. I imagine that they think that they are being very edgy with this choice, but rumor has it that Meghan and Harry had them beat with a beer pong table at their royal wedding that puts their pathetic conga line to shame. I'm sure we have not seen the last of the Christmas Prince series, though they get worse and worse, I'm sure that we can count on them for years to come. What troubles will our heroine overcome next Christmas? Stay tuned. So that was Marin's review of the Christmas Prince series. I also reviewed a Netflix Christmas movie. I saw The Christmas Switch with Vanessa Hudgens on Netflix. Uh, and my review is don't. Just don't. You are better than this, listeners. That's my Christmas gift from me to you. Don't watch a Christmas Switch because it is actual garbage. And <laughs> I did it for you, and you're welcome. If you're just tuning in, this is Shout for Libraries on CJSR, and you're a little bit late because that's it for today's show. If you have a review or a recommendation for us, you can visit our Facebook page at Shout for Libraries, or tell us on Twitter at Shout the Number Four Libraries. Uh, once again, this has been Julia and Michelle, and we've been your hosts for this half hour of library-centric radio. Catch us on the next episode of Shout for Libraries. 